Welcome to Physicians Off the Beaten Path, a podcast where we've set out to bust the myth that physicians can't venture outside the traditional clinical or research career path. My name's Shad, and I'm an MD and Harvard MBA student interested in healthcare investing and innovation. And my name is Alex. I'm an MD pursuing an Oxford computer science PhD, Harvard MBA, and a master's of biotechnology at Stanford. I'm interested in healthcare investing and entrepreneurship. Our guest today is Dr. Mohammed Al-Ubaydali. He's the founder and CEO of Patients Know Best, a British social enterprise with an aim of putting patients in control of their own medical records. Mohammed trained as a physician at the University of Cambridge and worked as a staff scientist at the National Institutes of Health. He also worked as a management consultant to US hospitals at the advisory board company. Mohammed holds an MD from Cambridge University. Mohammed, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to Physicians Off the Beaten Path. Thanks, Chad. That, uh, I'm really pleased you guys are doing this, by the way. I've listened to your podcast. I wish I, I wish I had this when I was your age, guys. No, absolutely. And we've been so excited for a few weeks here to chat with you as we've sort of dug into your background, your life story. So many interesting threads and elements have actually emerged. You know, Mohammed, out of all the guests we've actually spoken with so far, you know, you have one of the most inspiring stories. You know, after your family was exiled from Bahrain in the 1970s, you know, you spent your childhood really moving from country to country before ultimately moving to the UK. So your father could finish up his PhD. Can you talk to us a little bit about your childhood, what it was like to change countries often during that period of time, and and what eventually sort of led you down towards the medical path uh, and sort of liaise into what you're working on nowadays? But would love to hear for those of us in the audience members who's not familiar with your path and just a little bit of an overview. Sure. So I'll um, I'll focus on kind of things that would be of interest to uh, uh, young physicians, young medical students. So uh, me personally, uh, you learn a lot from travel, as, as you guys know. Um, I mean, the first thing from all that travel is uh, you learn to have constant failure. Uh, so I don't mean you learn from failure. I mean, you just learn to fail constantly. Um, so it happens so often, it's so sustained. Um, you don't feel it anymore. Uh, it's just kind of data you have to figure out. Uh, so I've one from... Uh, Yemen to Syria, Lebanon, England, Cyprus, England again. And every time I moved, um, I'd fail several subjects in the first year in, in the new school. Uh, I mean, being unwell didn't help. Uh, so I was off school so often because I was, um, before I was diagnosed and treated in my teens. Um, but really the problem is the constant changes in language and the system. Uh, so I had to unlearn and relearn everything in each new country. Again, you guys have seen this, right? So. Uh, so that's great training uh, for almost failing my first year in medical school. Uh, I'm just, I'm basically just a slow starter. Um, but you also learn from repeated experience that I eventually get there. So if, if I give myself time and I, and I enjoy the learning. So medical school is a really amazing environment to learn. If you're not stressing about failing, uh, then you can just, uh, just focus on the learning. So uh, the other thing you find from traveling is, uh, just how arbitrary most things that most people do are, right? So they're just habits people fell into through, you know, local accumulations of accidents in time and space. Uh, so then you come in as an outsider and your advantage is you evaluate every local habit unemotionally. It's not my habit. Uh, it means nothing to me. So I just 
I love traveling between all the hospitals as the medical student and junior doctor um, and just learning how different physicians did things. And the people in those institutions could see I was generally interested in what they were doing. So I wasn't telling them what the university doc had told is the, the real thing. It was, I was genuinely curious what they were doing. They'd share a lot more with me. Um, and then the last thing I'd say you pick up from traveling is just you're grateful, right? So uh, we were guests in every country we traveled to and lots of people took care of us. Uh, so, so not all of them did, but none of them had to, right? So then you realize how kind people are and you really appreciate it. So uh, in my case, one of the best things I um, was able to do is in my last year of medical school, I chose um, my first year of residency in the hospital where the staff were kind and I could spend a long time there. Uh, so Alex, as you know, in the UK, we do sort of six month rotations. I chose a place where I could do a one year rotation and the people there were really nice. Uh, so um, this one small rural hospital this is in Kings Lynn uh, was um, the staff there were really patient focused, but there weren't many of them. So, uh, and the patients were quite elderly. So everywhere you turned up, people were grateful. Uh, so that was a nice experience as a junior doc. Um, and then because I was spending a whole year there, um, I got to build up a lot of organizational relationships. So if I suggested a change, people knew I would be around long enough to implement it. So they'd let me try it. And because um, you know, they, they'd owed me favors, I'd built relationships, they helped me to try it. And so I got to do a lot more things as a first year physician that you'd normally expect. Um, and I just really recommend that. Just go for stability and kindness uh, over rotations and prestige when you're starting out in your career. No, appreciate that, Mohammed. All of that resonates so much. And as you sort of uh, pointed out, our audience members tend to be quite sort of international uh, in their disposition, either they themselves or their family members. Uh, and I grew up in Bangladesh and Canada before coming to the U.S. And Alex sort of grew up in Syria and the Ukraine. And there's a lot to be said about sort of converging different cultures, different influences together. Alex and I were watching something on Netflix today uh, on creativity. Vox does these little 20-minute episodes on how the mind works, and creativity is one of those episodes, and sort of talks about how the convergence of different influences and cultures in a small, confined area can often move the world forward in in very provocative and creative ways, but sometimes there's sort of a plateau, or, or you know you can sort of overdo it. And certainly, if you moved eight or nine times in like three or four years, you don't get enough time to actually adjust in any one place and use those influences in, in a cohesive way. So really, really appreciate that, and I think most of our audience members can actually resonate uh, with your arc uh, in some way. You know, I really wanted to talk a little bit about. I think you mentioned your illness. Uh, growing up, you know, last summer we had on the program uh, Dr. David Fagenbaum, and you know, as you know, he's the author of Chasing My Cure. David was diagnosed with a rare disease called uh, idiopathic multicentric Castleman's disease soon after he began his residency, and his battle with the disease led him to co-found the Castleman's Disease Collaborative Network, and he helped find and trial a drug for his own disease that put him in remission for many, many years. Very, very inspiring story. As I understand, you were diagnosed with hyper-IgM syndrome, a rare disorder that, you know, went undiagnosed for you for 
15 years or so. And you actually have said previously that your mother kept a meticulous record of your condition because you had to move all the time. And that record keeping was actually a significant factor in, in helping your doctors reach a diagnosis. Can you talk to us a little bit, as much as you can share, about that journey, about that illness, and what it was like for you and your family to, to struggle with the illness and how it's influenced you up until today? I, I really enjoyed that podcast with David, by the way. It was really humbling. And um, I mean, it, it's a great service you guys are doing. Uh, so, so honestly, I don't know how uh, my mother kept me alive. So one of my earliest memories in Yemen was uh, I woke up because a scorpion had bitten me because we all slept on the floor. Uh, so in that environment, I was, you know, with a genetic immune deficiency, I was constantly ill. Uh, and somehow my mother began boiling water before she'd use it for me as drinking water. And everyone around her said she was overprotective, but. Uh, she had the intelligence and education that um, she could see my infections were not like those of other children of the same age. Uh, and so she stuck to it. So she carried that knowledge and that protection across all the different countries we went to, going from specialist to specialist. And she was telling every uh, physician along the way that, that they were wrong about the problem. Right? Now, okay, now, I know this is very common for families of children with rare diseases. Uh, but as a teenager, I was, I was really embarrassed about my mother's arguments to doctors. Uh, now, she was right, and my life was transformed when I got the, the right diagnosis and treatment. Um, now, Patients Know Best, uh, the company I founded, the first deployment was at Great Ormond Street Hospital. Uh, that's the hospital where I was diagnosed, and they saved my life. Um, there were 35 children being treated by this physician, Susan Hill. And for each local hospital, uh, that child was the only one the doctors had seen with that disease. Right? So that very little idea had to best treat the child. Now, the person who knew best was usually the mum. No one listened to her. And the child's care was delayed as the local doc faxed the Great Ormond Street Hospital doc. Um, actually, later on, I, I found a hospital CEO who told me, it was really haunted because one of the kids that came into his emergency department had died because of that delay in waiting for the faxing and back and forth. So with PKB, that mum would get the full instructions in writing from Great Ormond Street in her child's record. And then she could ask questions back and forth and get more details again in writing in her child's record. So when she made that visit to the emergency department, she had all the text and logos and she had... She could assert her authority. And so that child was going to get treated right, right now. Uh, and, and those first few months in Grey Street, I, I personally trained every one of those families using our system. And I really enjoyed it, right? I was basically helping people uh, like, like my parents. And it was really nice to hear their stories. Um, now, in terms of all that, how that helped me in PKB. Uh, so the name Patients Know Best comes from my experience. Uh, so very few people have heard of my disease. Uh, even the super specialist who doesn't know my disease doesn't know what to do for me. We need to cooperate uh, to figure it out. And I know a lot more about my situation than I do. Now, I only fully understood this in 2007 when I was in the States writing a book about giving patients their medical records. And I came across so many situations where the patient knowing things was crucial. And so the more you gave them knowledge that I, I was just genius. 
So up to that point, I thought my docs trusted me because I'd gone to medical school. Uh, but in writing that book, I realized they trust me because I'd gone to all the appointments, which is what every patient does. So you become the de facto integrator and historian. And of course, you have the most interest, right? It's whatever goes wrong is going to happen to you. Uh, so as long-term conditions dominate and expand, um, the patient themselves is the newest and most important specialist. Right? It's the patient who takes the medication, changes their diet, does the exercise, or not, right? So they might, if they don't understand the regret, they won't do it. So, so far, the medical system ignored that situation. Uh, but if the patient had the record, like the full record, and they could fix the errors immediately, then healthcare could be safer and cheaper. Uh, and I think it's the only way we have of continuing to afford universal coverage in the 21st century. That, that's the idea behind patients in their best. Got it. No, I really, really appreciate you mentioning patients know best and, and what an enlightening sort of idea. I mean, I think it's something that most clinicians and patients do support, but I think you've sort of distilled it down so clearly for us and our audience. If I recall, I remember reading something about the unique funding strategy that you took when thinking about how to scale patients know best, because of course you care a lot about, you know, security, patient privacy, and, and you want to make sure that data ultimately is sort of owned and, and really controlled by the patient if, because it's his or her data and that matters to people. Uh, so can you just briefly tell us a little bit about how you thought about accepting funding for Patients Know Best and why this was so important to you? And Chad, you're asking about funding as in financing or versus funding from customers? Yes, yes, financing, that's right. So financing was really hard, right? So, um, I mean, today uh, we've got 30% of the UK under contract. Uh, we're the largest PHR personal health records company in Europe, not the world. Got 1.5 million registered patients, growing 150,000 a month. We'll get 50 million test results a month. So it's a, it's a lot easier to explain this to outsiders now if want to raise money because we've got a proven business model. But in the early days, um, like no, one, um, no one would invest. It was very difficult uh, to raise money. So, I mean, over 13 years, we have raised 13 million pounds in equity and debt. Um, but very, it, it's not like we had choice between different investors. We chose the best offer. It was literally every now and then we'd get one person who got it. They were very unusual. They tend to be the smartest VCs, but they were very unusual in doing so. And they took a really long-term bet. So the investors who were left with are really amazing to work with, but uh, the financing um, was really difficult. And so the only choice we had about financing was being able to survive long enough to prove a point uh, for both our customers and our investors. And so keeping the, the spending as low as possible rather than being able to raise the financing as much as possible. Um, but the, the model, um, I mean, it's the, the kind of the thing customers are paying for, it's simple. And I think it's obvious. So it's basically, it's one record about the patient, uh, it's for the patient and it's owned by the patient, like you're saying. So everyone connects to it. Uh, that's so much easier than the point-to-point -point connections between the silos. And the patient sees everything, so they finally have the tools to self-assess and self-manage. Okay? So anyone who's gone through the healthcare system, that's just obviously how things should be. Uh, but no one had gotten that model working in the past because of the coordination problem. 
So in the past, everyone got paid to focus on the silo, one particular. So they built for the silo, and that immediately limited what they can achieve. Uh, so when I started, uh, we had identified five silos from previous efforts. So they either do an institutional portal, they tie the patient to a hospital, um, and of course, the patient going across providers have multiple portals. We're trying to do a disease portal, so something for kidney patients, something for diabetic patients. But of course, diabetics get kidney disease, and now they've got two portals. Uh, or they do a regional portal, but now the patients travel and the data doesn't go with them. Uh, or they try and do a transactional portal, you know, book an appointment, reorder your meds and so on. But it's frustrating doing a different portal for every different thing. Uh, or when I started in 2007, like the big idea was Google and Microsoft were going to solve this with their PHRs. But all they did was create a new silo, which was the patient-entered data. So we spent a long time convincing customers to pay us to store a copy of the data they hold about the patient and to make that copy available to the patient. And that's it, nothing else. So no advertising, no selling data. It was just, we're gonna securely store it. And that was worth paying for, but it would also be a network effect because as the patient engages with the provider, they're cheaper and safer to look after. But then other providers also start sending their data. So you end up with a more complete record the patient has than either provider has. And the patient starts adding data and the devices start adding data and so on. So you end up with a complete record. And also now you can see all the errors. The medical records are full of errors because now you can see side by side all the contradictions. So you can start fixing all the errors. So in the long run, this is inevitable, right? So I think people will look back on medical records as uh, just insane and unsafe. Uh, just like now we look back on you know, I, George Washington died from leeching. Uh, so, like, how could so many clever, compassionate medical clinicians tolerate that? We'll look back and then say, how did we do this? Um, but it took a long time to prove that on the ground at a low burn rate. That now it makes sense, and we can we work with national governments at national scale. But in the early days, financing it was very difficult. Thank you, Mohammed, for sharing that. I think there's a, a big story there for uh, entrepreneurs or to be entrepreneurs or, uh, you know, med students, residents or clinicians in our audience members who are thinking about startups. You know, sometimes you have a vision and as entrepreneurs, you have to be optimistic about the vision. Of course, you're not wildly optimistic. I mean, you have to get a sense of what the trade-offs are and, and how you can actually verbalize that vision to investors. But sometimes your optimistic vision is not going to exactly square with uh, the mindset of investors because, you know, investors and entrepreneurs oftentimes are looking at the same problem at fundamentally different ways. Uh, investors have, to, you know, are sort of thinking, you know, how can this venture lose me money and what are the different ways it can lose me money? And so they naturally come at it from a different perspective. And so I think the learning there is sometimes it won't uh, echo with everyone and that's okay. You just have to find the right partner, the right investor. And, and sometimes maybe you raise less money and then, as you said, prove, de-risk it for the latecomers and sort of move forward that way. And so it seems like you've been able to do that quite well. So really, really appreciate that learning. That's all the questions I had, but I wanted to pass it on to Alex, who had a few more questions, but really enjoyed speaking with you so far, Mohammed. But over to you, Alex. 
Thank you, Shad, and th thank you, Mohammed, for sharing your journey and, and story and, and more about patients know best. It's, it's been really great to hear that. It's really interesting what uh, PKB is doing. Um, as someone who works in that space, I think having data siloed between different institutions and having those institutions not sharing data effectively among each other is such a problematic thing especially when we look about the utilization of data science, the utilization of AI. Um, so I think BKB is doing a lot of interesting things and it's really exciting. And I hope it can be one of the inflection points, like this movement towards a centralized patient record can be one of the inflection points for effective utilization of AI. I mean, we've seen that in the pandemic, right? At the beginning of the pandemic, each institution had siloed data on COVID patients, but yet we didn't have enough aggregate data on the regional or central level to be able to build effective AI algorithms. And there has been a lot of research that show how most of these algorithms had a lot of bias that to some extent was a result of the lack of training data. So yeah, I, I'm super interested in that space and what PKB is doing. And th thank you for sharing more information about that. I guess maybe shifting gears a little bit um, to the point where you've made the decision to go into the IT space initially. So at the age of 17, you've read James Glick's book, Chaos, Making a New Science, which opened a lot of readers' eyes to chaos theory and its wide impact on different sciences. So you attributed this book as a direct inspiration for your decision to take a gap year before college to take a programming course with a chaos theory expert. This experience maybe was the fuse that began your career on the intersection of healthcare and IT. So for our audience who may be unfamiliar with the concept of chaos theory, can you perhaps talk a little bit more about it? What is it? How can it impact medicine and healthcare? And what can MDs learn from it? Sure. So I'll, uh, I'll keep it brief so I don't bore people with uh, how excited I am about this. But, uh, so, so chaos would be a great name uh, for a book about healthcare system, but it's actually about systems that uh, have nonlinear dynamics. Uh, so linear dynamics means things that happen in a straight line, right? So you double the price, half the people, people buy it, or uh, you double the dose, you get double the efficacy, for example. Um, Nonlinear systems don't behave in that way. So a small effect can have a big difference. Um, so I think, uh, Alex, probably you know the famous phrase that a butterfly flapping its wings in Brazil causes a storm in the USA, right? So these systems are really difficult to predict because you no longer know if a small difference have a big effect, which is bad because you'll always have a small error in your measurements. So you might have an unpredictably large error in your prediction. So the flip side is the most interesting thing, systems are nonlinear. So earthquakes, the weather, the economy, and of course, for me, the human body, right? So as I read the book, um, it covered so many disciplines where the scientists learned to program to analyze their chaotic system. So there were geologists who learned to program for earthquakes, meteorologists for weather, economists for economies. But I couldn't find a single physician who learned to program in that book, even as the examples of chaotic systems in the body multiplied. So that day I just decided um, I'm going to learn to be a doctor so I could write that medical simulation software. Uh, so why do you want to be a doctor? They asked me on the interview, right? And um, I, I don't, I said, I just want to write software correctly. And 
you know, when I tell this story, people often tell me I was brave. I, I wasn't. I was just really naive. It made sense to me, but I didn't realize just how stupid that sounded to everyone else. So, you know, of the five medical schools you're allowed to apply to, four immediately turned me down. Um, and, and luckily, one of them did accept me. So I got to go to Cambridge in my hometown. And my goal throughout medical school was to get to the home of chaos science, which is the Santa Fe Institute in New Mexico. Uh, and five years later, I got to do my elective there. Uh, so I was writing software to simulate the immune system. Um, now, so as you can tell, I find chaos science fascinating. Um, I don't necessarily recommend that to everyone, but what I do recommend is uh, just the, the, the absolute joy of doing something different. Because um, I learned so much along the way for Santa Fe. And whereas everyone else sort of paid to have to do their elective, shadowing doctors in a hospital where they couldn't do anything, I got paid to learn how to write software. Um, like they even paid for me to have a car for seven weeks in New Mexico. I was driving around listening to audio books. Uh, and that's what your series is about, right? It's just if you do something different, it doesn't matter what it is. If, if it's different, if you can combine it with medicine, someone somewhere will find you extremely useful and they will take um, care of you. Thank you so much for sharing that. I really appreciate the point on creativity and chaos theory. One of the recent episodes that we had with uh, Dr. Kevin Tab, who's the CEO of one of the largest healthcare systems in the US. In that episode, we discussed uh, the importance of translating innovations between different disciplines and that most of the innovations, they're not created from scratch, but brought between one discipline and another. We discussed the role of the physician as a translator of innovation. So certainly appreciate your point on that. One of the topics that we like to discuss on this podcast is how can medical education change and evolve over time? So I know PKB is only the latest entrepreneurial uh, step in your career. You've had entrepreneurial projects and you've created companies before. So would love to know uh, your thoughts on how can we encourage entrepreneurship and the medical curriculum and how can we change medical education, kind of encourage more medical students, medical doctors, early career professionals to innovate and to, to take an entrepreneurial step. So uh, I th I'll just start by reflecting on what you were mentioning about the, the intersections, because uh, I think that leads nicely onto what I would encourage people to do entrepreneurship. So uh, in medical school, I read uh, a biography of William Osler, you know, Osler's notes guy. Uh, so I just, he just became my idol. So just so you know, um, his parents were from Cornwall in England and they went to Canada. And then he trained in Germany and started John Hopkins Medical School in the USA. And the British thought he was British. The Canadians thought he was Canadian. The Germans thought he was German. And the Americans thought he was American. So he combined four different amazing medical traditions by moving across the interfaces. And the other thing that he did was the reason he went to Germany was to learn under Verkau, you know, Verkau's triad guy. So in those days, pathology was what technicians did. They were in the basement. Uh, they were, you know, not much above a butcher in terms of the respect the physicians gave them. And so he was very unusual in going to work with a technician and go to the basement. But he basically proved that you cannot 
do medicine if you do not understand pathology. Everything follows from the pathology. And he was the person to establish that the symptoms, the signs, the diagnosis, the treatment, everything. Uh, and I would say today, uh, in if you don't understand IT, you can't do anything interesting in medicine. And, you know, in my day, IT was the technicians in the basement and going to see them was the was the interesting thing. So a lot of the innovation comes from the intersection, whether it's the intersection between German medicine and U.S. medicine or the intersection between traditional clinical medicine and IT. Uh, or art, right? or, or drama, whatever it is. If you combine two traditions, whatever they are, something cool is going to happen. You're going to think differently to some other people and come up with innovations that your colleagues were not able to, to conceive of, and you will bring a whole discipline to bear on improving medicine. Uh, so for me, in terms of encouraging entrepreneurship, a lot of it is about... Uh, students having role models beyond their clinical professors and being aware that there's pathways, uh, which again is why I find your series so interesting. There are just so many different careers where I found a lot of my peers in medical school thought medicine meant you had to go through a certain path, whereas I thought medicine opened up so many paths. There were so many things you could do with that education. Uh, and so one of the most interesting things for me was um, every Tuesday, uh, the university had um, evening lectures where someone who'd started a company would talk about their company. And they were everything, you know, from, from chips to retail, whatever. Um, but it was something different. And it was just, it wasn't so much that I wanted to copy any of their particular actions. It was just were, the world was so wide open. Uh, and, and to me, if you expose the medical students outside their traditional curriculum, which is so exhausting and so limiting because you're so focused on that exam, if you can just look a little bit outside and collide with other disciplines, uh, I think that, that that's half the battle. After that, you know, you step on the ward and there is a hundred different problems that need solving. There's no shortage of them. What you need is the... Uh, the eyes with which to see them and some belief that you can solve them with somebody else's discipline. Thanks, Mohammed. I really like the analogy that you've made of uh, IT to healthcare and pathology to healthcare at the turn of the century. So yeah, I find that very interesting analogy. Maybe shifting gears a little bit now to your trajectory coming into the UK as an immigrant. I'm an immigrant myself, Shad's family, are immigrants and one of the known concepts or phenomena is that it's called immigrant mentality and statistics show that immigrants usually outperform others on many metrics especially in education however immigrants also tend to take risk averse career paths uh, we've had a conversation with dr mark shankar from summit partners and uh Dr. Bobi Azamian from Tarsus Pharmaceuticals, which is a public biotech company, and, and we discussed this topic in length. So I'm really curious to know your thoughts on your experience, perhaps, with the immigrant mentality, how you used it as a force for good, and how were you able to 
get outside of the comfort zone and choose a more risk-averse path within that context. I mean, if you come from a country which and a situation which wasn't safe, so I came from Lebanon, the heart of the civil war, and came to Cambridge, England, which was much quieter. Uh, it's natural to be uh, like, what's the thing you need to do to stay in this country and have a career and not to leave? So I, I get that people uh, tend to go towards education because that gives you a qualification and um, minimize downside risk. Um, but there's a bunch of things that the also from the immigrant mentality, if you, if you harness them, they send you towards entrepreneurship. So uh, the first one is that you basically we're all saving money, right? So that means when you start a company uh, with no salary, you have very low expenses anyway. So it's not you're not missing luxuries. You're not used to them. Um, but it also means you've got savings that so you can make use of those opportunities that you find in the wards. Um, the next thing is you're able to look out for those opportunities. So when you live in these different countries and you realize that most things are arbitrary, uh, you just look around with a lot more curiosity. Um, and the other thing that you learn is uh, how critical it is to make yourself useful. Uh, so the reason we went to Cyprus from England is that my father lost his academic visa. Uh, and the reason we came back to England is that his former employer realized no one else in the world could do what he was doing for that department. Uh, in, in my father's case, um, so he'd started a conference on multilingual computing uh, when he couldn't find the right software to type for his PhD thesis. Uh, so a lot of the solutions for right-to-left computing were figured out in his conference. And they brought him back to the UK, so we keep running that, running it there. Uh, so, I mean, that's my best careers advice to people, right? So I, you know, follow your passion. That's for lucky people. So the rest of us um, learn a skill that's difficult and useful. And if you learn a skill that's difficult and useful, you can do whatever you want after that. Uh, so I, I, I'll give you a silly example. Um, so I really like being part of running societies at university. Uh, unfortunately, I'm completely unelectable, uh, but I can type. So I applied for the society secretary position and I won everyone uncontested. Nobody else wanted to go for it, it was boring. Um, but no meeting could happen without me taking notes in that meeting. So I got to learn so much so quickly just from typing notes. I was useful because I knew how to type. Um, and I'll give you a more serious one. So my first year in medical school, uh, I worked for Dr. Jem Rashbas in um, the biomedical computing lab. And every professor came to him for help in writing software. And Jem would give me jobs. So my first summer holiday, I wrote cardiology simulation software for the cardiology professor. And for me to program the software correctly, the professor had to teach me cardiology. And the same thing for radiology. The radiology professor had to teach me radiology so I could write him software. Um, so I learned so much so quickly that summer, and I kept on making myself useful to others throughout medical school. And so with that background, um, I knew I can always bounce back, right? So if I made a jump and it failed, not a problem. Somebody else is going to find me useful. I can get back into things. Uh, so, uh, you know, save money, make yourself useful, and then grasp the opportunities from seeing things differently to the locals is what I would say. Perfect. Thank you, Mohammed. certainly appreciate the point about software, and it seems that differentiated skill allowed you to 
have access to a lot of learning opportunities pretty quickly because the counterparty really needed that skill. And so, yeah, I certainly appreciate your point about having a, a differentiated, diversified uh, yeah. skill that is required. And, and I think that ties to the point of how physicians and medical students can position themselves within the context of the transformation that is happening in healthcare today. For example, so much is happening in the space of digital health and healthcare machine learning. So much is happening in the space of biotechnology, gene therapy. And so really there's a lot of new roles and new opportunities that are opening up. And I think if medical students and and early career professionals step up and become experts in those areas that are really nascent and, and rapidly growing, they can bypass a lot of bureaucratic ladders and they can grow very quickly. I certainly really appreciate your point on that. Maybe the last question from our side is to finish off, how can our audience learn more about what you're doing and to follow the impact that you've had? Oh, uh, so uh, anyone can subscribe to uh, our blog. Most of our impact is basically documented there on uh, blog.patientsknowbest.com. Uh, but if I can help anyone, um, my email address is mohammed at patientsknowbest.com. So uh, M-O-H-A-M-M-A-D. They're welcome to contact me. Perfect. Thank you, Mohammed. Pleasure to have you on. Shad, that was such a great conversation with Mohammed. Really enjoyed it and uh, enjoyed learning from his experience and insights. I guess my main takeaway is around developing uh, the idea that he mentioned of developing a niche skill set and how important that is uh, in the context of healthcare. I feel today there is a lot of disciplines that are colliding with healthcare and there is a lot of innovation that is happening on the intersection of healthcare and another discipline. So for example, healthcare and biotechnology, uh, healthcare and um, machine learning, healthcare and computer science, etc. There's limitless opportunities and possibilities there. And so I think within this context, being one of, it is much easier to be and become one of the few experts in a rapidly emerging space. So for example, if the space of healthcare blockchain is like a couple of years old, it is way easier to become an expert there than becoming an expert in interventional cardiology, where there is hundreds of thousands of specialists, and it's such an established and wide discipline. And so I think within the context of the rapid transformation that is happening on health, in healthcare, this creates a lot of opportunities for, for early career professionals and, and, and students to, to identify these niches uh, on the intersection of different disciplines and, and really position themselves um, very good candidates to lead and innovate in that space. I know we've, we've kind of mentioned this during the discussion with Mohammed, but I, I felt it, it was an important point. Over to you. No, I really appreciate that point, Alec. And yes, it was a really, really engaging episode. And uh, one thing that I wanted to mention that was a big takeaway for me was sort of how uh, Mohammed uh, financed his uh, company, Patients Know Best. It was an unusually long-tailed uh, financing uh project because you know he was quite frank and candid about the fact that not everyone understood the vision that he had for his company and i think it's important to point out for prospective entrepreneurs or current entrepreneurs who are listening is that you know as the owner of the idea as the entrepreneur you're going to be the most optimistic person uh, about that idea and, and vision you're going to be the, sort of the cheerleader but investors naturally are trained to think about ideas a little bit skeptically because they have to think about how 
you know, their capital or their LP's capital will be lost. And so they come at it from a slightly different and uh, a little bit more pessimistic perspective than, than the entrepreneurs naturally would. And bridging that divide or that chasm can occur through a variety of different ways, through good communication. Effective communication is probably one of the more important ones. Doing your research, so being able to answer those questions that investors throw at you is another big one. Uh, but sometimes there will just be a chasm, right? And not all investors will be on board. And so you'll have to perhaps raise less money or less capital and work with the right investors and that use that capital to de-risk your go-to-market strategy or whatever it is so that more and more investors who may initially not have understood the vision or may have initially had lower risk tolerance can eventually see the progress that you've made and come on board. And so, you know, don't despair just because you're having a hard time raising capital. Find the right partner and see what you can do with the capital that you raise and then de-risk the company with experiments moving forward and get more and more people on board. So I thought that aspect of how Mohammed raised uh, capital for Patience Know Best was really, really instructive and good tactical advice on on how entrepreneurs should think about raising financing. Uh, so that was sort of my main takeaway for our audience members. You know, join us next episode for more conversations with amazing physicians who have ventured off the beaten path. And remember to follow us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at POTBP Podcast, and to catch our latest podcast episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Google Podcasts and Amazon Music. To get in touch with us, you can always email us at physiciansoffthebeatenpath at gmail.com or visit our website at potbppodcast.com. See you next time.